0: out of reach positions like you said um, you know munition stumps uh, HQ decision centers um, kind of get, get get to the heart of, of the, the Russian offensive and, and attacking directly there um, of th- these videos I'm sure I'm sure the guys in the front and, and elsewhere you know they, they go around like wildfire um, but at the same time obviously we're seeing these uh, sort of increased uh, over at Russian atrocities in terms of their missile strikes, um, some of the shopping mall yesterday and other kinds of things. So I was wondering if you could speak to kind of the um, how how kind of both of those, right? The you know the the awesome footage of, of the HIMARS, other weapons um, really really starting to deliver, but also kind of how how the kind of the news from say you know they maybe they have their family back in Kiev and stuff like that. Um, how do both those things tend to affect kind of the morale of, of the guys you're fighting with, and you know does does it kind of just rile them up? They, they they're able to they're able to take that and uh, and and run with it or or does do you find that you know especially the Ukrainians who write um it's it, it's their families and stuff that are getting you know bombed every day how, how does that how do you see that kind of affecting the um the mentality of the guys around you and the guys fighting on the ground
1: yeah so obviously the guys worry about their families back home I'm not gonna say they don't uh, they do um, especially when they hear about it they'll call their relatives make sure they're okay. But every time Russia hits these civilian areas, all it does is build more anger um, <clears throat> and lowers the view of humanity on what a Russian is, um, like as far as their soldiers go. Um, I don't think a lot of Ukraine – I mean, some – there's probably resentment amongst, amongst Ukrainians with Russia and the population in general because they're probably trying to figure out, you know, why a lot of the Russians are still silent on this these actions like there's no reason to use an anti-ship missile to fricking launch into a city when you know that it's not going to be able to use the sensors to hit the target you're trying to intend if they were not trying to hit them all. Um, if they were trying to hit them all, they're just as barbaric anyway. But um, I mean, it affects them. They call back to their loved ones, make sure everything's all right. But at the end of the day, all it does is build more anger. And like I said, it lowers the view of the model, um, on the Russian soldiers and, um, and I, I mean, it's you know they, they they don't they it's not that the Ukrainians are going to treat them inhuman, but it just it just lowers what their value what like what what the Ukrainians will think of the Russians in the long term, short term and long term. Um, and the more that they do it, and I hate to say that because they've already been doing it a lot, and like you don't think it can get worse, but it's going to get worse. Um, <clears throat> the more that Russia feels threatened by these weapons, the worse they're going to act, um, and that's just something that's going to happen. And but I mean, it it just is at at this point, they're almost to a tipping point where these relations will never change. Um, And I think it's going to take decades for even if Russia pulls back and everything returns to Ukraine, it's going to it's going to be it's going to be an extremely long time before the Ukrainians think anything of Russia or their people again, you know. I mean this is bad i mean every every civilian attack the ukrainians just get pissed off more and more, so um Ukraine isn't gonna fold just because they're killing civilians it's gonna this
0: this gonna galvanize them and then on the, on the flip side of that ryan obviously the uh touch on there with the the high mars, um in particular these these sort of deep strikes in, in the Hanskoblast and elsewhere occupied territories um is there a sense that um you know obviously they need they need increased numbers absolutely not something everyone here has been calling for um, but is there a sense now that this could be um, maybe turning point is too strong of a word but this is this is maybe one of the things that they really needed to as you started said start start taking out the HQs uh, the ammo dumps and stuff and maybe even sort of in the coming days and weeks see uh, some sort of positive signs of that on the front line
1: yeah I mean there was obviously it sounds bad to say there was an ecstatic joy when they hit the depots and then that training center or that military base um and i wouldn't say they think it's a turning point but i think they, there's a hope that there's going to be a turning point um <clears throat> the turning point's going to be when the attrition level drops a little bit and when the russians can no longer just take little bites out um and i think that's coming i think we'll start to see a change in pace for russia in general within the next you know 3 to 6 months we've got to hang on uh, not get swacked by artillery and, uh, you know, the more heavy weapons we get and the more that the high Mars can do while not getting destroyed at the same time, you know, the, the morale is just going to keep going up every time we hear about an ammo dump getting hit or a training base, you know, um, or a military base, whatever the target is, it, it is, a, it is a morale booster. Uh, you know, when you, when the can say, yeah, we strike to target 40 km behind the front lines, you know, the Ukrainian troops are, they're ecstatic about it. They're happy. Um you know, they smile and smirk and make jokes. (laughs) So I I think, I don't think we're at a turning point yet to where this war is fully going to be on Ukraine's side. Um, I think we can get there, but we do need more of the HIMARS in. And, you know, it's, there's people that sit back at home and be like, well, why don't they send 20 at a time? Logistically, the U.S. could probably flood Ukraine with all these heavy weapons, but Ukraine getting them into areas before they get hit in large numbers, if they're all grouped up is just not going to happen. So when you see like two getting sent at once, then four, then, you know, two more or whatever it is, like with the howitzers, it's because they have to test their logistics to move this stuff forward first. Cause if you keep it all in one area, you're going to lose everything. Uh, but yeah, the, the high Mars, the more the high Mars hit, the more hope that the frontline guys, uh, you know, this is the more hope we're getting Um because again, it, it creates loss for the artillery units. if the If the artillery wasn't as bad as it is now, um, Russia would have no chance of doing anything. Uh, it'd just be it' be it'd be like lemmings jumping off a cliff if they didn't have the artillery. So um, <clears throat> if we can knock down the artillery mount, we'll be able to do a lot more stuff. Uh, you're seeing that happen down in uh, Kherson region right now because Russia moved so much of its artillery further to the northeast for Severo and stuff. So if there's lower artillery, we can do a lot more offenses. We've just got to get to that point. I think it's coming, but it's going to be, you know, six months or so at least. Uh, this war is not going to end anytime soon. Uh, I'm saying probably another 18 months, unless Putin has a change of heart.
2: Well, Ryan, there's a thing as to the HIMAR system. And apart from the fact that, yet again today, uh, um, in the run-up to the NATO meeting in Madrid, uh, more... Uh, commitments have been made but four plus four of the high mass system from the u.s uh, additional commitments uh, so the m270 then uh, three iris from uh, three miles from germany plus a good dozen as it seems from the uk so the kit is coming and some of it is in theater but more importantly uh, the discussion has moved in the u.s uh, to authorizing the release of what uh, Ben Hodges calls Atakams and what my British friends call Atakams. So you can choose your poison, but uh, this would give deep strike capacity of up to 485 kilometers and not just the 300 as per spec to Ukraine. That would a- enable them to hit a lot of targets also where the artillery is hidden directly in border regions.
1: Well, that'd be good. Um, <clears throat> I don't
2: think the U.S. should worry about limitations and
1: at this point it's a freaking war um if we want to hit inside russian territory we should be able to do it um and that shouldn't be a limitation on what we get given um ukraine isn't dumb enough to start hitting civilian targets there's plenty of russian bases that luckily aren't in civilian areas uh that we can totally smash um obviously ukraine's probably not going to launch HIMARS into russia um just because of political, the geopolitical landscape is. But yeah, if we could hit the artillery at the borders or even hit their the rail lines going across the borders or hit their bridges going across the borders um, and just basically make it a mess for them, you know, that's good for us. But I, I don't think the U.S. or any Western countries should really put their foot down on range limitations. Um, there seems to be like,
2: none. Yeah,
1: that's, can, that's good. They're the not They never should have done I mean, obviously, <clears throat> the West needs to ensure that these weapons are not going to be used to target civilians. And like I said, the Ukrainians are obviously smart enough not to do it. But, you know, there always needs to be a stopgap just in case. Um, so, and like I said, there's enough targets that Ukraine would never have to hit a civilian target, nor should they ever. So,
2: Yeah, they want to win the war, not genocide somebody else. We have a couple of hands more, Ryan. friend Abel, a uh, Finnish friend of ours. Yeah, loud and clear okay i i just
3: first i wanted to thank ryan for for all the work that you've done there and i i mean, you, you've really truly gone beyond the line of duty. uh i i trained in the uh, finnish special forces in the one of the guards Jager regiments in helsinki when i was a conscript and if i were not over 50 i would probably be traveling to ukraine but but my i'm just too old i can't do it but i wanted to give you kind of a how would i say kind of a cheer up on what you're doing and i, I would first of all i would have to say that i i in, i am indebted to you as a finn because well and to, to all ukrainians because what's happened today in madrid i think is to a great deed it's it thanks to the fighting women and and men of ukraine and of all other nations uh, given that uh, it turns out that erdogan has finally sort of conceded to the to the uh, sort of a trilateral agreement uh, for finn Finland and uh, uh, Sweden to become ma- members of NATO. And you have to understand that what you do on the technical side, uh, on the front, uh, has now paid off a huge strategic loss to Putin, uh, with the fact that now the biggest obstacle towards the Finnish and, NATO, uh, Finnish and Swedish NATO membership has been, has been lost. Uh, despite the fact that uh, it appears that uh, Mr. Putin had a telephone call with Erdogan at some uh, and all of a sudden he turned against this 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 arrangement. But it's it's due to the fact that they are taking losses on the front and they are losing the war thanks to people like you. So I just want to express my wholehearted Finnish gratitude to, towards what you're doing and and thank you so much for everything that you've done and. That's just a comment. So, oh, oh, I had one more uh, comment which re- relates to you. You, you saying that uh, there are issues with the Russians having actually pretty capable infrared instruments, and this is a topic that I think the EU should have a closer look at because I'm pretty damn sure that Raytheon uh, or or. Uh, uh, any of the other uh, Fleur or the other US suppliers are not supplying uh, infrared systems to the Russians, but, but the, the latest sales that I've, I'm aware of uh, came from Safran, which is a French company. So I, I, I hope that Europe, the Europeans would take care that you know there are no French uh, infrared systems that are delivered to to the Russians. But thank you again, Ryan, and I'm so grateful for everything that you do. and. Uh, I know
1: it's to little, but you know I just hope that I could cheer you up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Uh, as far as the equipment stuff goes, and uh, Western tech being used, um, if we get chances when we blow something up or we find it abandoned, we do try to take photos of any of the processing boards and all that. Uh, like if a BMP gets blown up and the radio goes to pieces, um, usually we try to take photos. We send it into the Ukrainians, and then they do whatever they do to it, they disseminate it out. So, I mean, if, if the West says that they don't know that their technology is being used, that's false. The Ukrainians are keeping track of it. They're notifying the various countries of what companies are doing it. Um, we have found French um, electronic pieces inside of you know Russian equipment. Um, <clears throat> there's been American, too. Um, so, I mean, they, they are, they, I'm assuming the various governments are trying to track down where those pieces were sold. If we can find a serial number, we obviously take a picture of that and send it with it. So, I mean, hopefully they're being proactive and having discussions behind the scenes. Uh, I'm going to assume they are. I don't think, I don't, I don't think they're just going to ignore it. So, um, but again, some of these pieces might be, you know, from the nineties or whatever, but um, yeah, they are, they are, the Ukrainians are very, uh, very, They're very keen on taking photos of anything that is technological, you know, whether it's a radio or a sight system or, you know, anything that's not like a hydraulic. So um, they are they are sending it to the government with the photos
4: and the evidence. So, thank you, Ryan. Okay, all right, thank you. Uh, I know Henry's been waiting a minute here. He's had uh, some issues getting here. (laughs) I appreciate it. Uh,
5: Can you guys hear me? Okay.
4: There's a little bit of background noise. Not sure if you can uh, change that, but other than that, if not, okay. go ahead. Okay.
5: Now, Ryan, I appreciate everything that you're doing over there. I just uh, had a quick question for you. I've got a background in electrical engineering, uh, so I design and build PCBs, and I have that, that capability of doing that. Is there any type of electronic that you guys would see that would be a little bit more helpful if it was altered in a way that would help you with your specific job? Because I know you guys are doing stuff that's more... Uh, hands-on and DIY, is there something that you guys would need more of there to help you guys with that? Or if if you don't want to say it on here, you can definitely shoot me a DM um, and it's something that we can, we can definitely work on and, and possibly get you guys some stuff over there. But are you guys happen to just scrounge up parts and improvise or do you guys have a, a, a healthy supply of what you guys need to make that stuff work?
1: Um... <clears throat> for my job specifically uh arduino boards and stuff like that um but sending that stuff to me would probably make the u.s government a little angry just because of what i do with them um i can connect you with aeros though and some of these other drone units that are building drones and repairing drones and they would probably be a better and more More uh, politically correct approach uh, versus what I do with the Arduino boards and the other electronic supplies to make it, you know what I mean? I'll I'll hook you up, shoot me a DM and I'll hook you up with the guys who are building the drones, repairing drones, doing the, you know, trying to fix the optics and stuff like that. Um, They're probably a better link than what I'm doing without making the U.S. government angry type deal.
5: Okay, yeah, no, that'd, that'd definitely be awesome, because uh, I know those Atmel chips, you can buy those in bulk, um, and those are, they're all open source anyway, so I've, I've put a bunch of those on boards where you can have the inputs and outputs and stuff on those as well. So, yeah, I'll definitely shoot you a DM.
4: All right, perfect. Hey, thanks. Thanks, Henry. Uh, and on that, I think uh, there was a question asked here. Uh, Ryan, if we could, uh, without giving anything away again on the sort of need side of things, uh, is there any sort of ammo and ammunition you could use more of, again, uh, without disclosing whether whether it's you know, super necessity or not, but sort of looking at it from the perspective of what things could be useful to you, or free, I'll phrase it as that. What sort of ammo and ammunition could be super useful to you?
1: Give me one second. I'm thinking for an overall picture um for not not specific in my unit because we're actually pretty well equipped we uh we tend to get whatever we ask for um to a certain extent obviously um but uh cruiser weapons would be good um mark 19s um even like the 203 grenade launchers we need i know we need 40 like more 40 millimeter non-linked rounds would be good uh basically like the handheld grenade launchers for the 40 millimeter um, and the ammo for them. Um, a lot more 50 cals, more 240 Bravos would be good. Um, <clears throat> outside of that, just the extreme heavy weapons is what we need, really. Um, but unit-wise, the the cruiser weapons would be good. There's uh, You see them once in a while, but you don't see them a lot. Uh, if we can get them over here and get a training group started on how to employ with, like, three people, like a fire team, um, you know, being able to set a Mark 19 up, drop 100 rounds or 32 rounds out of one box onto or 36 whatever it is onto a russian position then be able to pick it up and move real quick would be a a godsend um there are some in country and like the mark 19 rounds, depending on the elevation you know you can have up to up to like two kilometers um we've actually shot further than what the max range is according to the tm but we also had a higher elevation but uh stuff like that and then For individual troops, again, like the 40-millimeter grenade launchers with the actual ammunition for it, the HEDPs would be good. Uh, My personal thing that I would like more of is the M-72 laws, the the updated ones that NAMO is making. Those are the ones I use. Um, The Airtronics PSRL-1 RPG-7 tubes um, with the thermal optic would be good. Um, Outside of that, I, you know, just mainly general ammo, 5.56, 7.62, 5. 5. would be good. But yeah, the stuff, the stuff like the Airtronics RPG tubes. Uh, so the, the U.S. made airtronic systems can shoot the regular RPGs, but because of their sighting aperture and everything else, they shoot a lot further, a lot more accurately. Um, and you can train people on them a lot quicker. The... Mark 19, just because it's a devastating weapon that three people can handle and move. And then, like I said, the 50 cows and stuff too would be good. So, and then the handheld grenade launchers for city fighting. Thanks, Ryan. And I'm going
4: to uh, just drill into one of those real quick here for some questions, because maybe some people have seen this, uh, whether they've seen it on Twitter or or at least to me, it's a little bit atypical uh, employment, at least uh, you know, to my understanding of it or, or my perspective of it. Uh, on the 40 millimeter side, let's start with the first one there. Uh, so... Uh, when, when you're talking about the 40 millimeter and you're talking about uh, whether it's uh, under barrel or, or by itself, just talk, could you just walk us through why that's useful to you or what situations you might use that in, whether you prefer that in urban or you prefer that for for taking people out of trenches or behind vehicles? Uh, just if you could sort of elaborate on the, on the usefulness of that from your perspective.
1: Yeah, so there's two types of 40 millimeter. You have the 40 millimeter linked, which goes to the Mark 19s. Um, And then you have the 40 millimeter, which is like your handheld grenade launchers. If you're an American and watch war movies, it's typically the one that you see under the barrel of the rifle. Uh, There's a new system that's the M320, which basically has a buttstock and it's just a grenade launcher barrel. Uh, They're useful in city fighting. If you want to clear a building that they're shooting out of, you can shoot into the window and it basically takes them all out. Um, Or at least, you know, it'll prevent them from firing for a few minutes uh, as they get their head put back on. Um. And you can use those, you know, 300 meters, 200 meters, 400 meters. <clears throat> we, you could use them with night vision too, because they make a day-night and night sight with it. That paints a, a giant circle where the blast radius will have a wounding effect and kill effect. Um, so they're also good for trenches and stuff too. They, they're they're really small grenades, but they're extremely lethal. Um, and like they're they're just amazing. Uh, we don't have enough of them. The rocks and 30 millimeter ones aren't as good so uh they're good to drop from drones
4: too so and that that leads me into the the second half of that question there with the 40 millimeter uh in terms of the length that you mentioned so uh it's new to me at least in terms of seeing some of the employment of it uh seeing some of these videos where it almost looks like they're using the the mark 19 uh as it completely as indirect almost mortar support the, the elevation of the tube is is you know, it, it's almost vertical. It's really not, but um, but it's quite high. So, so clearly they're, they're shooting quite a distance or over buildings at a higher angle. Could you talk to us to that? Is that effective? Is that not effective? Um, I, I've never seen it employed like that in terms of, you know, could it be accurate? Could you actually uh, sort of walk your targets in, whether it's via radio, if you can't see it over building uh, or if it's clear line of sight, is that effective? Uh, when you talk about max range, is that how you're using it or no, you're using it differently?
1: So, actually, the Ukrainians didn't come up with this. A group of U.S. Marines actually employed a Mark 19 in Iraq. I believe it was in the Battle of Fallujah the second time. might have been the first time. Um, So, they were actually the original ones to do it. Uh, But basically, what you can do with the Mark 19 is – so, the max range on those is like 2,100 meters or whatever. But you can actually take an artillery quadrant, mount it to the system on the side, do it with some modifications – and you can actually angle fire those for plunging fire, uh, basically like a mortar system. Um, you won't hit a point target, but you can hit an area target. Like if you know where a Russian HQ is or base is or a grouping of vehicles, you can definitely hit it. Um, I've actually, we tried that in the north once. We overshot the target. I overshot the target, actually. They didn't. I did. Um, and in return, we took a bunch of tank fire. But it is doable if you know what you're doing. And you don't miss. Um but yeah, I mean if you plunge fire, you can hit the trench lines with it. because um, you know you're you're dropping it basically like a mortar on their head. So I mean it is effective. Um, and teaching the Ukrainians, a lot of them actually have done it with the the Russian ones previously in Donbass. So a lot of them are receptive on it, it'd just be up training them on the Mark nineteen and actually getting a quadrant so that they could dial it in a lot. Um a lot more accurately, and then rebuilding the tripod that they sit on so you can actually get the full angle fire for it. But, yeah, it's effective. It's been done. Uh, like I said, the, I think the Marines actually might teach it now. Uh, if they don't teach it, I'm pretty sure it's in a manual somewhere just so there's a reference on it. But, yeah, um, you can use them as that way. And like I said, you can actually extend the range, too. It just depends how high up on the elevation you are. Um, I know the target that we shot at was like 2,000 meters, and I overshot it by probably 300 meters, roughly. I still, get,
4: is, I still get shit for it too. <laughs> when when they're doing that, um when when you're talking about the elevation, uh does it lock it in? Uh, from what I've seen, it, it didn't look like it did it. So I'm asking it from the perspective of what is the shot to shot recreation or not shot to shot, but group to group, meaning uh, can they hold it in the same position? Is it uh, not accurate, but is it, is it, is it reproducible so to speak or reprodu- reproducible for you to walk to the point that you need it to to walk to, or does it actually hold the, the elevation uh, for itself on the tripod?
1: If you're doing like the higher degree firing where it's almost pointed upwards or at a higher angle than, what you're normally shooting it at is basically the best way to explain it. It's like a mini grad. Uh, basically it'll blow up all over, um, but it'll hit the area you're at. If you know what you're doing and you adjust for the wind and you have your angle properly. Um, <clears throat> if you're shooting like a point target, you can probably hit one like at 800 meters pretty easy. Um, it really depends on the gunner. You can lock the tripods in. They have a teeny, which is basically a thing that you mount on the back of it and then onto the backside of the Mark 19 that you can adjust up, down, left, right. Um, Most times we haven't used it. We just lob rounds and adjust fire on them. But yeah, you can do it accurately. You can, you know, single shot it and just smash the shit out of stuff as long as you know the distance. And the guys good with the TNE.
4: And are you guys using that basically as as support and area fire, or is or is that would that be your first choice? Uh, I know you're talking about a point target there. Maybe maybe not as effective farther out or whatever. Um, are you using that uh, as suppression, or or if you had enough of those, would you be using that as a primary?
1: Uh, we've predominantly used it by suppression because we only have one, so it's more like a get out of dodge type deal where we need to put down a lot of fire quick. Um, getting artillery fire. Because the fronts are so busy with artillery, uh, you can call in for artillery, and you may get it, and you may not, just depending on how busy those guys are. Number one. Number two, if they're in place in an area near you. And number three, if there's any aerial threats that they know about. Um, and the same goes with mortars. Uh, they're not going to shoot 120s if there's an aerial threat or a drone up, or if they're currently on another op. So when you have a Mark 19 that's either mounted on a pickup truck or sitting in the trench line, it, just, it, adds, a, it adds a lot more firepower that you can lay down range and uh the mark 19s will actually like go through the bmp's the btrs um will <clears throat> mess up the optics on the tanks where a 50 cal might not do as much damage when you're hitting that stuff um and with the 50 cal and a 249 or any other like uh light machine gun or heavy machine gun
4: you're not going to get that splash damage like you do with the mark 19 excellent thank you uh ryan we've got uh, dr paul joining us dr paul go ahead dr paul if you can hear us there. Uh, if you're having technical issues, we'll uh we'll just bump you down there. Can anyone hear Dr. Paul? Nope. Okay, all right. We'll get him cycled back up. Uh new voice in the room here, Ankir, to you.
6: Hello, Ryan. Greetings from the Pacific Northwest, where we indeed have very few mosquitoes. Um, My question to you is, do you interface much with the medic teams, and uh, are they well-equipped? Do they have enough personnel, and how are the MASH units holding up? Thank you so
7: much for all you do.
1: Oh, the medics and EVACs. That would be a good subject. Um, So we do talk with a few. So we have our own actual soft medic. Um, He's pretty squared away. Uh, Like I said, our commander was killed recently in Severo. Uh, He had gotten shot in the neck. Uh, Our field soft medic actually did a field tracheotomy on him. Uh, They did life support on him for probably 30, 40 minutes. We couldn't get him in the rear fast enough. Uh, He sadly passed away, um, which sort of sucked. But um, as far as the medics go, um, they're around. Um, So a lot of people think that when somebody gets injured, you can just go get them. Uh, With the amount of artillery, if they're not in a trench, you may or may not be able to get them. Um, and it's just a sad fact of how this war is. If they get hit outside of a trench, you're probably just going to have to leave them. Uh, they're going to have to do self-care. And hopefully they can get to you. Um, because if you run out there, you're you're going to die too. Uh, and then you have more people getting killed. Um, there is a good group that I believe just lost a medic in a vehicle accident, the Uh, I totally butchered how you pronounce it. Um, they are extremely squared away. Um, they had, they had a bus that they converted basically into a full triage unit, full setup, everything. Their medics are amazing. Um, they and they're not, they're not line; They're frontline medics. So come out, get your casualties, bring them either to an aid station or to the hospital. Um, <clears throat> outside of that, I haven't really experienced the MASH units. Um, if we have an injured, we give them to the medics and then the Ukrainians drive them off in a car ambulance if it's available um so i mean i don't i can't really respond on the mass side but i will say like the hospital our group is probably uh they've saved probably hundreds of lives if not more so um they're good i know they're fundraising right now for a new bus uh, i don't know how the fundraising is going i haven't looked recently but yeah they had a bus i don't know if it's a vehicle on vehicle accident or what but uh total the bus killed one of their pretty good medics so um, <clears throat> but otherwise, it's a lot of self care, buddy care. And then I hope you can get them out under cover, under fire. Because, um, you know, they're, they're not going to stop artillery just because they wound one of your guys. So it's it's really a 50 50 if you can get them out. Although, luckily, a lot of the injuries aren't um, like, you know, you still have that golden hour, as the U.S. calls it. So a lot of the injuries are still in that golden hour. Um, the Ukrainians are pretty receptive on picking up the tourniquets and stuff. So. And they do have medics, and they are trained decently. It's just getting, getting people off the front line and getting to the injured soldier is the problem. But, I mean, there's not really been there's not really a medevac in most cases. You know, it's, if it happens, we deal with it when it happens, just because uh, Russia has in the past hit the ambulances and stuff, so they usually don't put them up at the front line.
7: Thank you, Ryan. Yeah, we actually had two ladies from hospitalers medical volunteer medical battalion here in this space katerina and anna and uh, indeed today uh, their medical evacuation bus like specialized bus for medical evacuation for severely wounded um, there was an accident i think they they were moving or driving during the night time and they hit the military vehicle on the road in the in the in the combat zone as they were evacuating and one of the ladies unfortunately unfortunately died their trauma surgeon lost his wrist so they had to amputate his his hand essentially uh of the trauma surgeon surgeon so that person will not be able to to continue his his job and uh, his occupation um and the bus itself was lost. And indeed, that right now they're they're trying to raise money for for a new vehicle. So yeah, unfortunately, that happened today with hospitalers, and they do a tremendous job, absolutely tremendous job at medical medical evacuation. Their paramedics, combat medic, they do a stellar job, and it's very unfortunate that that happened. And by the way they're one of the prime targets for Russians. Russians specifically target them. They specifically target combat medics and medical evacuation vehicles. So those were my two cents, sorry, Dr. Polty.
4: Thanks, Walter, and uh, thanks, Brian, for being here, and thanks for your service to both the United States and in Ukraine. Um, My question is, you know, recently, in the last several weeks, I've noticed uh, substantially more machine gun fire support within Ukraine units such as the M249 saw and others. And that seems a lot different than it was the first call it two months of the war. And I'm curious if you've have an opinion or if you've heard of the, is that making an impact at the tactical level on the battlefield?
1: Yeah, it is. So <clears throat> the service, the U S service members here were probably gonna be like, you're wrong, but um, <clears throat> the two four nine, even with its flaws on jamming every once in a while and just, being an overly big pile of shit once in a while. Um, it is making an effect. It's lighter weight than the PKM. I carried the PKM in my and in European when we got stuck in uh, trying to ambush that, not even ambush, assault that Russian HQ. Um, the PKMs are good, uh, but it's not a light machine gun. It absolutely is terrible to carry around. So uh, the only other option they had in the past was like the RPD, which is basically, I think like a 40 round mag, uh, not as effective as a saw. The saws and the 240s are getting to more frontline units, and they are being used, and I think they're being used effectively. Uh, they're lighter weight. They're smaller. They're easier to maneuver. Um, this, the sights on it are better. Um, if we can get them some of the MGOs, the uh, machine gun optics, that would be even better. I don't know if any are in country. That's something that somebody can start yelling at Congress to bring over here, um, even if it's the old version ones. Um, yeah, it's definitely having a better impact on things though. Um, anytime you can lay down a lot more suppressive fire quickly and accurately, it's going to it's going to make a better battlefield situation for the um Ukrainians, so and they're they they are using them effectively, especially the 240 Bravo to be honest.
4: That's great to hear. And just a quick follow up, you know, going back to the Javelin discussion just briefly. You know, I've always kind of wondered why you know, Ukrainians and yourselves haven't really lined up like five or ten of these in an area and taken out entire columns. Is there a reason for that?
1: Um, <clears throat> once you blow the top on one tank, the other ones tend to pay more attention. Uh, so you can usually catch a tank crew sleeping, uh, not not literally sleeping, but figuratively sleeping, um, especially if they're all battened up inside their hatch. they it, It's just a lot easier to hit one tank. But once you hit one, it puts the rest on notice. Um and depending what area you're in and where you're at, they can also call in helicopters and find you. Um, they they target the javelin guys quite a bit. So um, <clears throat> that would be about the only reason they don't line them up. The only thing that could, they could really do is hit one in one part of the AO and then smack one in the other part just to keep the uh, helicopters moving. And then hopefully they can get a stinger kill. But, um, yeah, once you hit one tank, it's usually not advisable to try to go after more than one. Um, just because it does wake up the Russians a little bit on their security. Um, the only thing that they could do, and it is being used now, is have, uh, this is, isn't for the one but like for the anti-air, the man-pad stuff, they are starting to use more multiple ones and doing some other tactics that um, should start resulting in a lot more stuff dropping out of the sky here soon. So,
2: Did you encounter anyone, any of the uh, rumored uh, heavy German machine guns, the 12.7?
1: i have not uh we did encounter some of the mg 43s at the start of the war they got shipped with no butt stocks for some reason so we never grabbed one i used one in iraq funny enough as mg40 yeah the 43 like the whole yeah um but at the initial start of the war i found a crate of them and they didn't have butt stocks i don't know if they ever found the butt stocks for them but I, I haven't encountered the
4: 12.7 german one yet
2: You should be seeing about 500 of them in theater soon.
4: Perfect. I'm going to have to look up how to operate them. Ryan, could I add on to that question there? We're talking different calibers and and different ammunition types for for some of these um, weapons and, and having some preferences for them. Uh, is your unit going uh with with all do, do you find that you tend to go all nato rounds or is it a mixture of it and it and if it's a mixture of it uh sort of on the resupply side does that complicate things or no not at all it's, it's easy and again without without giving away too much or anything like that uh do, are you guys uh, mixing uh the ammunition calibers and does that cause any any problems with uh getting resupplied for for the weapon of choice that, that you guys tend to take out or pick
1: uh, rifles, we use all NATO machine guns. We use all NATO. Now, uh, we give our PKM to a TDF unit. And then I think we gave another one to a Georgian unit. Um, the Georgians tend to prefer the, uh, East block type stuff for their machine guns. For some reason, uh, not saying they're bad. I mean, they're, they're heavily accurate with them With for some reason they are, but, um, we typically stick with NATO. Um, our grenades are typically the Soviet style, um, the, what are they, RGNs, RGDs, or whatever they're called. Um, It'd be nice if we had some of the newer German ones. But from my understanding, they handed a lot of those out to the guard unit, like the National Guard border guys. So, I mean, they're they're still being used. But um, grenades, we take whatever we get, uh, whether they're impact or not. Um, Rockets, majority of them prefer, like, the M-72 laws. And then we don't use MT-4s just because there's too many safeties on them, no junk. Um, Matadors, we use a lot of, uh, obviously, Javelins. Uh, I prefer the Iglo over the Stinger, but uh, we have a Stinger when we had a Stinger. We don't have it anymore. That got given to another unit that I was having air troubles. Um, but, yeah, mainly NATO. And then we have an RPG-7 just because we got the
4: U.S. tube, the Airtronics tube. So, has has that made it any easier to, to standardize, uh, at least for the rifles on NATO? Maybe if that was different from when you first got there, uh, that you you can look left and right and you can share ammo between you, or if someone's going to grab ammo or resupply, it just makes it easier for you guys to to know what you're picking and grabbing and and, and anticipate what you what you'll have on hand.
1: Um, so actually, my new I'm going to actually ask what they had for weapons because I'm going to swap to whatever they're using. Um, as as for us, since we all use NATO, even with our like gas guns, like our long guns, it was a lot easier to swap between ourselves, but a lot of the Ukrainian units did not have five, five, six. So we're always carrying like 50,000 rounds at a rear supply point that we have to drive to go to, to get it, to bring it up. So, um, the unit that I'm moving to, whatever they use, all use, I'm going to assume since it's a all Ukrainian unit that it's going to be. Probably Soviets all carry AK, and I'm fine with that. But um, our unit, we were fine transferring loads between each other. But uh, we found out in my shooting real quick that if you don't bring extra ammo, you have to be careful. So um, uh, the more Western rifles that come in, the better for us, I guess you could say, because then more Ukrainians
4: will have them. <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. And maybe just to highlight on that that transition you're talking about, you know, going from one unit to the next, if, if you could sort of walk us through that process just in terms of so you're you're going to a new unit, you're you're taking it upon yourself to sort of figure out what sort of weapon you think uh would benefit you and then finding that weapon whether it's from the new unit or or however you do it uh is there a period of time where you can get your optics moved or do they provide that and then you get yourself zeroed H- how is that working out like what what sort of takes place in that transition if you're going to switch over to say an ak from from what your setup is now
1: um <clears throat> so the optic i have now is a rail system it's just a red dot i actually don't so i actually don't use a carrier rifle i have a rifle as a backup I usually carry RPG-7 and, like, six rockets or 12 rockets, depending on where we're at. Um, And then a little pistol. Uh, So, usually the the rifle's in a backpack, or I don't even bring it, just depending on what we're doing. Um, I'm not going to take my optic with me. It's just because if they have the AKs, they're probably not going to have a rail system on them. Um, So, I'll just use iron sights. I'm hoping I can zero it when I get up there, if that's what I get, or whatever they give me, I can zero. Uh, If not, we'll just zero it while under fire which sounds bad but you gotta do what you gotta do so um they really didn't give me too much time i got like a two-day notice i got today and tomorrow and then i go so it is what it is it happens
4: um so yeah okay well thank you ryan uh okay two new hands up we got uh nina and alex i'm not sure which one was first it may have been alex go ahead alex
6: thank you well first of all since nina is here i want to congratulate that um Sweden and Finland will be in NATO. They send, uh, they signed a memorandum with Turkey, um, so Turkey will not block their accession, accession to NATO. There are a couple of other announcements, but I have a question. I, I heard uh, Georgia, and I guess you were discussing International Legion. Uh, my question is, um, are a lot of new people joining in, uh, particularly from Georgia or are like uh, i understand they need to be trained and whatnot so is it kind of what the pipeline what does the pipeline look like um is it ongoing thing or is it shrinking or is it just stable um yeah and then i guess there are also casualties that have impact if you could like in very high like on a very high level describe that what's your impression
1: Yeah, so like Georgians specifically, so I'm not really sure how they're doing it, but as far as I knew in the past, if a Georgian came into the country, the Georgians would take it on them to train the guy up. The Legion would basically do the paperwork, give them to the Georgians, and the Georgians did all that training in-house. They're pretty good. The Georgian Legion's pretty top-notch at taking care of their guys, um, ensuring that they're trained, they know the chain of command, all that. Uh, Probably more so. Than the Western foreign volunteers. Um, and I don't know, I don't probably just because I don't know. The the Georgians are really good at at managing their own, their own guys underneath the Ukrainians. Um, we could, the Legion could probably learn a thing or two from the Georgian Legion. (laughs) So, but yeah, like there's, there's still Georgians coming in country. Um, there's still Belarusians coming. Um, and obviously, there's still people from the West coming in, but I believe that Belarus and the Georgians basically, once that person gets to where they're going to for the paperwork, the paperwork signed, they get their ID and all the background checks and everything are done. The Georgians basically come pick them up, they bring them to wherever their training camp is or wherever they're doing their stuff at. They train them, they put them in the squad, and then they go. And that's been working for them. So,
2: Ryan, how large is the okay, Georgian you. detachment roughly?
1: I wouldn't have a clue. It's fairly large. They operate in more than one area. Put it that way. Um, there's a lot of Georgians. They could make a little city. Put it that way. Like, there's there's a lot. Um, yeah. And some of them are veterans from the, was it 2008? I shouldn't get this wrong. 2008 war? Was that when it was or 2009? 2008. 2008, yep. So there's yeah. a lot of them here that have uh, experience from that. Um, they're pretty good fighters. Um they could use some better tactics on th- some things, but overall they're really good. Uh like I said, they're really great at managing their guys, uh, ensuring that they're in the right place when the new guys come in and everything. So um uh, that, that,
6: that, that's music to my ears, you know. And yeah, uh, they take care of
1: their countrymen real well.
6: And I'm glad that they keep coming. It means um they, they the government doesn't really block or try to block them hard. All right, thank you. <clears throat>
1: And they they do a lot of good work on the front lines, too. Uh, there's a few battles. I don't know if they posted on so I'm not going to say too much. But uh, there's a few battles, but they're pretty, pretty
4: instrumental on stuff. So. Alex, we're getting some background noise on your mic, Alex. Okay, all right. Uh, Nina, go ahead. Uh,
8: thank you, Garni. And uh, thank you, Alex, for congratulating uh, Finland and Sweden. And uh, actually, this is like a really big relief for me, because it's been not a nice place to be between Erdogan and, and uh, this NATO uh, application things. And uh, I, I just want to say that uh, this is good for uh, Sweden and, and Finland and NATO. And that means it's bad for Russia, which means also that it's bad for, uh, it's good for Ukraine and good for the Western world and NATO. So uh, uh, this is uh, like actually uh, I, I feel really emotional about this because um, it's not been easy to to sit here and wait for this show what Erdogan has put on. And knowing that Putin is not far away from, uh, even if he is not going to, to come here because uh, they are already in Ukraine. Uh, but anyway, yeah, this is really bad news for Putin. And uh, I think it's the way, it will show also the way uh, for Ukraine to one day join NATO. Thank you.
4: Thanks, Nina. Okay, all right, with that, uh, just to set the audience, because we've been speaking with Ryan here, he's been very gracious to give us his time here this afternoon. Uh, for anyone who's just, tw- just, just tuning in now, Uh, we've been speaking with ryan o'leary here uh, in the walter report space ryan's on the ground in ukraine uh one of the volunteers one of the foreign volunteers uh, has been there since the beginning of this in february uh, and is still there and is giving us his precious time uh on on the little downtime that he has in between transitioning units here so out of respect for him and the great things he's done to us um, to anyone tuning in out there uh, please come on up here with your questions for ryan Ask about what you, you, you your your mind desires in terms of what it may be like for Ryan or, or questions you've had. We've had a great discussion here.
9: Uh, it's going strong. Uh, so with that, we have a uh, Chris and then Nick. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I'll just tip my hat to Ryan. I think you're doing a super job. Um, I just got a question in relation to um, really tactical. Um, we go on about a lot in the West about this maneuverist approach and how we how we exploit the night to break through and achieve breakthroughs at the platoon and company and battalion level. Is that is that even working these days with the, with the prevalence of uh, thermal imagery, night sights, and how modern battles being fought, or is it just a bit of a fancy? And we need to relook at how we conduct small unit tactics back in the UK and the US Army.
1: Um, so as far as nighttime operations go, the Ukrainians do some, they don't do a lot. My unit all has night vision. We use White Foss night vision. Uh, you know the thirty ones and the the pretty high level stuff, uh, for various reasons. Um, so we operate a lot at night, but there probably is going to have to be a look back at the playbook for a lot of things. Um, if you don't have air superiority that can provide overwatch and stuff all the time, the, the night ops, you can still do, but it's how I was training the U S military would definitely not work here. We would get smacked by a tank in minutes without air support. Um, it's the way the U S has transitioned to training since the Iraq war has completely changed everything. And they need to go back to uh, the Vietnam playbook and then update it to understand about thermals. And then basically that would probably be where I'd start training people out again. Um, The force on force is completely different when you put in, you know, not having full air support or, you know, if if you don't have air superiority, you're never going to be able to do nighttime operations in a front, uh, static front line like this because you're either going to get seen by a drone or you're going to have tanks looking at you through the thermals. So it's a lot different. You, you wouldn't be able to operate in a platoon-sized movement like the U.S. has typically done in the past. So, yeah, I think they need to go back and look at their playbook. Uh, will they? I don't know unless they get in the shit eventually in a war. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it'll be a learning experience when the U.S. gets in another big war that's actually... Uh, with a somewhat comparable force that prevents full air superiority.
9: Yeah, thanks. So. I, I, I th- my thoughts are the same from listening to you and looking at what's going on. I think the ideas of 30, 40 people and forming up points at night time and the dispersion, it's, it's just suicide, I would imagine, given the prevalence of artillery strikes. And you're right, I think um, we're, we're going to have to relook at this because it's the basis of a lot of our small unit tactics since the Second World War. And if that ain't going to work and it's positional, then we need to start changing our force structures and the equipment we've got. But that's me. Thank you very much. Thanks to the host. Thanks, Axel. Big soon.
2: Pleasure, Chris. And by the way, you're right on one thing. Obviously, the new uh, the new setup of the battlefield will include systems like links and boxes, different kind of, um, say, defensive care for those who are mounted in them.
9: A- agree, Axel. It's quite interesting. You probably saw this, being a perceptive man that you are. CGS General Saunders today was talking about less maneuverist, more positional warfare at Rusey. It's interesting. That's obviously the thinking, certainly within the UK, but I guess we'll see how it develops. Thank you. Good luck. I
1: I think that <clears throat> that general's definitely right too. Um as as the the weapons of advance pass the full maneuver and tactics phase, um it, like again, it, it's gonna depend on it, how you what your positioning is on the battlefield as far as air, navy and all that goes, but uh, with loiter munitions, uh, commercialized drones being used. Like, you can't use large maneuvers anymore, um, and I don't think you'll ever get away with that unless you have the spirit of the air. Or, you know, if it's an island and you have the Navy's superiority, then you're probably fine. Um, <clears throat> but, yeah, I think you're going to see basically modern World War One on a larger scale. Like, what's going on now is basically what, you know, like there's airs that look like the psalm on the videos that you see from, like, 19, 19- Sixteen I'm probably off on the day, but uh or the year. But yeah, it's 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 getting back to the more positional versus uh you know, we're not gonna do like what we did in Iraq in two thousand three or whatnot, where you just blitz across stuff. If if you meet a superior force or an equal or slightly lower force, it's gonna be suicide trying to do how we currently operate things. And I think the U.S. is already rotating outside of that. Um, I'm not in the U.S. military anymore. I haven't been since 2014. So hopefully they're already adjusting fire on things. And I think the West is, too. I know Britain's been – there's a lot of talk with Britain on stuff, too. I talk to some British guys here all the time. So hopefully they're, they're understanding the complexities of the new battlefield as far as lethality goes if you don't have air support fully over the battlefield.
2: Albeit, uh, right, Ryan, if I may say so, it's highly unlikely that in any future battlefield outside of Ukraine, uh, we would ever get caught. We, meaning the West, would ever get caught without proper air support.
1: Knock on wood, but you never know.
2: <laughs> yes, agreed. All righty, right. we have Scandinavian. check Still loud, still clear.
3: Okay, great. Thank you, Walter. Thank you, uh, Axel. Uh, so, Ryan, uh, thank you again for your service. I have a bit of a question regarding the thermal, or let's say the night vision, so would you say that the problem is more, and you know, uh, I'm not sure if I'm bringing up here, but, uh, but, but is it like airborne uh, airborne uh, thermal or ground-based thermal, that's the bigger problem? And then maybe a sort of a more general question, which is that, you know, you've served with you now a number of troops, uh, which are highly international, so can you, can you, Pick like like a favorite of the foreign participants in this in this question that 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 you would feel like that the operations are going the best or you probably don't want to pick favor but I'm sure you've seen lots of differences in 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 the tactics and all that and how would you judge those with respect to this
1: special kind of
3: war that is undergoing?
1: Thank you. Um, <clears throat> tactics wise, the uh, you. Know, you the u.s military hands down tactics wise the guys that are veterans from the u.s military uh we've basically got it as far as cqb and night ops go we pretty much run the show on that uh no matter what other volunteers here now when it comes i'm gonna get crucified despite other americans <clears throat> now when it comes to attitude on the battlefield working with locals like locals being ukrainians um the georgians and the belarusians are probably the ones that are spot on um uh, the volunteers that are not Georgian or Belarusian could learn a thing or two from them about uh, respect, um, <clears throat> being tactful, and just overall better discipline. Um, a lot of Western volunteers came in here thinking they knew they were hot shit and stuff. Obviously, that changed when they went under artillery. Um, but they didn't always respect the command, um, which is why you saw a lot either get kicked out or slowly put towards the rear because the Ukrainians just weren't going to have it um <clears throat> if you look at the Georgians and the Belarusian legions and even the Russian uh Ukrainian guys that are fighting like the Russian units uh, they were just a lot more tactful in their approach um, and it has worked out a lot better for them there's less they don't butt heads as much basically within their own units and um with the Ukrainians uh, a lot of people came over here and they're like oh we don't need a command structure it's like look for a thousand years, wars have had command structures. You have to have one. Uh, our unit was the same way at the start. Mosheon was a shit show. Erpin was a shit show. Um, luckily, none of us got schwacked or killed or anything or hurt really too bad. Um, but since then, we've now got a command, chain of command. Um, some of the guys who are assholes are no longer assholes. Um, if any of them are listening, sorry, but... so i mean there's just a whole different change in the uh the the attitude wise definitely goes to the georgians and the uh the belarusians i would say anti-tank to the british actually but uh as far as like cqb night ops the u.s has
4: it hands down for volunteers thanks ryan okay uh was there a follow-up to that no okay i'll take that as a no uh mr m just a short
0: announcement uh, turkey has accepted uh, finland and sweden to
4: the nato it's uh, just been... okay yes Th- thank you uh, mr m uh so to everyone who's broken in uh, i apologize if it's if it's redundant and and mr m thank you very much for, for, for letting us know um we have gotten this uh all afternoon uh turkey has has uh somehow acceded to uh to whatever demands were out there for for uh, sweden and finland uh but but yes we've we've heard the news and we appreciate that uh but i don't want to step on uh ryan's airtime because it is precious to us no for, okay uh, yeah sorry mr and we'll uh, we'll come back to that we'll come back to that later but uh ryan's time is very very special and precious to us just uh to get some on the ground updates uh so so